0: Hello and welcome to Talking You Retina, the official podcast of the European Society of Retina Specialists. I'm Jonathan McCrae. In this podcast, we bring you expert discussions and interviews with leaders from the world of retina and beyond. We'll also keep you up to date with the latest news from the society. In this episode, something a little different. We'll be looking at the development and use of retinal organoids in research. But before we get into that, some dates for your diary. There is a Yours case lab on the 14th of March, 8 p.m. CET. Details on yourretina.org. It's always good to hear from the younger voices within our retina community. The uh, EBO exam is uh, coming up fast, the deadline, which is the 15th of March. If you want to apply for this post-fellowship qualification, uh, it's a fantastic thing to have on your CV. You can apply before 15th of March, again, on the website. abstracts for free papers, posters, and videos. 18th of March is your deadline for that. And the mentorship programs are open until the 11th of April. So a little bit longer for those. uh, If you want to know more about that, check out previous podcast episodes. Uh, One more thing to mention. We would love to hear your suggestions for topics for this podcast. Email us, podcast at euresina.org. Well, on with the show, as they say, Uh, Robert J. Johnson, Jr., or Bob, is an associate professor in the Department of Biology at Johns Hopkins University, and he has been developing and building retinal organoids for the past decade. Thanks so much for for joining us, Bob. Uh, There's lots of stories in in the news about uh, organoids, but you've been working on uh, retinal organoids for for. It seems like a comparatively long time. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, the, the the paradigm that the the mechanism you're using to to grow these organoids, and how how far advanced that is over the years?
1: Yeah. So first off, thank you so much for the invitation. It's really great to chat. So we started working on human retinal organoids about ten years ago, and I was really inspired when I saw a talk from uh, a really fantastic scientist, Yashiki Sasai who was one of the first innovators of this human retinal organoid technology. Over the years, several other groups, including uh, together with Dave Gam and Jason Meyer, and even more recently, Botan Ruska's group, have adapted these and kind of specialized them for specific goals. What I would say is that in this organoid field, there's a lot of development of the model. In other words, like how can we make it grow better? How can we be you know we grow these organoids and only a, a certain percentage of them actually mature into the tissue that we're looking for and that's just fantastic work that's out there our work is a bit more trying to understand how development is working so this is we're really using this as a model we're not trying to improve the model per se but use the model to understand uh human retinal development
0: so uh, tell me about the the actual technique and how how you go about uh, creating these various cell types, and, and what sort of level of a organoid do you have by the end of your process that you then use for your research?
1: Yeah, so what we do is pretty simply: we take either iPS or embryonic stem cells, uh, we kind of clump them up, and we add a series of Agnes, a uh, series of signaling, um, promoting, and inhibiting molecules, and then ultimately, by around day forty, we kind of put them into kind of standard media. And the reason why we like this is that what all our data and others' data suggest is that once you get them going toward this retinal fate, they can do it on their own. And that's why we like it as developmental biologists, because it allows us then to change things and see, okay, what are the effects of that on the development? So for us, more or less, we kind of influence the stem cells up to about day 40, and then we let them go on their own. And what we see is, you know, it the timing the ratios, the the numbers of different cell types really recapitulates what we see
0: in the human retina. Um, your work has been in some way focused on color vision and how that develops over time. Can you tell me a little bit about that before we talk about maybe more clinical applications of this technology?
1: Yeah, sure. So our work is focused on how we get the three uh, cone photoreceptors in the eye, the red, green, and blue cone photoreceptors. And I want to emphasize a lot of people think of it as color vision, but these are also... Our daytime sensors. So these are real, you know, uh, the photoreceptors that allow us to see light during the day. And so what we work on is how you get those three subtypes. And it seems to be a two-step process. In the first step, the cells will decide to be either the blue subtype or the red slash green subtype. And then if they take that red green path, they make a second decision to be red or green. And so what our work has suggested, um, our most recent work is that retinoic acid is controlling the red-green fate decision, and that a different hormone, thyroid hormone is controlling the blue versus red-green decision. And so the the idea here is by studying the organoids, we can understand how the different cell types are made with the hope that we can then later engineer them to make specialized organoids for different purposes, in particular, for example, for making the fovea, which is a, a very important part of our retina.
0: Up until this discovery that you've been working on, it was assumed that it was a sort of a stochastic gene expression. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I want to emphasize that, you know, we haven't ruled that out. There's always in biology some element of randomness that plays a role in things. But I think what what really uh, has now moved the field a little bit with this work is that it was kind of strictly thought to be this coin flip mechanism where the cells randomly decided, you know, heads, I'm going to be red, tails, I'm going to be green. And our work really suggests that there's a temporal or timing mechanism and that this timing mechanism acts through retinoic acid signaling.
0: Before we talk about clinical applications, obviously, uh, when you have cells in, uh, in media, it's, it's not a structure. And of course, for surgery and for lots of other different clinical applications, um, having 3D sort of models to work with um, would be very advantageous. I, I presume your cells in media are not quite a 3D structure like we would find in the eye.
1: So uh, that's a very excellent question. So this is one of the challenges in the field. The photoreceptors are a great cell to study because they're kind of on the outside of this organoid. So it's kind of like this sphere, right? And the problem is that the inside of the sphere, those cells don't seem to get the right amount of nutrients, et cetera. And a lot of the cells die. And we have recently started work on that uh, to understand how some of those cells die, in particular, the cells called retinal ganglion cells, which connect the eye to the brain. And these are the cells that actually get either defective or die during glaucoma. So there's a huge interest in, you know, the biology of these retinal ganglion cells. And so we found our ways to prevent their death, but it's still a real challenge to preserve the integrity or the three dimensional structure of the organoids themselves.
0: Right. So um, let's then go through various things because we have listeners who are, are obviously sometimes specialists in, in AMD or diabetic retinopathy. Um, let's talk go, go through them one by one. How would these sort of organize have a clinical application to perhaps coming up with treatments or understanding um, the development and, and progression of AMD?
1: Yeah. So I would say that in terms of treatment, I think there's two, you know, there's several different ways people are thinking about using these. One is kind of a uh, whole graft kind of transplant, like basically taking organoids and transplanting them in and hoping that they integrate with the normal retina and then, you know, uh, innervate properly.
0: Um, I mean, I has, that, say, has that been done uh, successfully? And, and with reference to the structure question I had before, is that, is that an issue?
1: So uh, there's a, a paper, I think it was in stem cell, stem cell uh, this year, where people have done uh, transplants and they see that the transplant survives And there has been minimal rescue of function. So it's, I would say it's an impressive, you know, big step. Just the fact that the transplant wasn't rejected, that it was maintained in the eye, but there's still many challenges ahead of actually getting it to be functionally uh, interpreting light information and transmitting that to the brain. Right. So I would say that these kind of whole tissue transplants would be particularly useful in cases where, the photoreceptors or other tissues are severely uh, degraded and damaged. Like literally there's a hole where those cells would be. And basically you're trying to replace those cells. So I would say that's one major Avenue, uh, a major Avenue, a, a different kind of direction that I'm actually involved in together with my colleague, Mandeep Singh is trying to provide a therapy to sick photoreceptor cells. So there's many cases before they die and degrade where you can actually, hopefully try to rescue the function of photoreceptors that are still there but aren't functioning properly. And so what we do in these cases we're working on technology to transplant the organoid derived cells, you know, near the photoreceptors and what we see is that they actually somehow connect by these little nanotubes from the healthy photoreceptors to the sick photoreceptors and then they transfer proteins and other cytoplasmic materials and it seems to rescue function. So, oh. you know, i say there's, and I'm sure there's many other uh, directions people are taking, but I would say those are the two main ones that I think about.
0: And so what about diabetic retinopathy? Are there applications that you're aware of that use these retin- uh, retinal organoids? So I'd say
1: in general, with all of these different approaches, we're still a bit away from direct application. I will say that I think, you know, again, kind of going back to the, these two, major ideas. One will be kind of replacement therapy, and one is kind of rescuing impaired function.
0: Another technique that's being developed at the KCI Institute is using stem cells grown from patients with inherited retinal diseases to grow retinal organoids that have those those diseases already there to try and understand them better. Is that a useful approach to, to perhaps understand IRD better?
1: I, I think that our study suggests that these organoids are really on the timelines of human development. So with that said, if you're studying kind of juvenile timescale retinal diseases, this would be a great model because, you know, you could, you could grow an organoid for maybe a year or so and study the biology of that. Right. But I would argue that things, you know, unless you want to grow the organoid for 65 years and look at macular degeneration, it's going to be a much tougher ask. With that said, you could still study the biology early and see what changes there are. But ultimately, I think it's a little bit different what you're actually studying. It's more of the biology of those early stages rather than understanding the, the late stage kind of macular degeneration, et cetera. And I just wanna emphasize that, you know this doesn't mean that it's not gonna be possible moving forward, but at least right now, our studies and others really suggest that these are fetal to kind of you know infant uh, developmental timelines and so that's the kind of understanding of disease I think that we could get insight into.
0: Uh, tell me uh, about your research with a collaborator looking at the fovea and uh, and with some potential application for understanding AMD.
1: Yeah, so we have another paper uh, that we're working on in which we're trying to understand how the fovea is um, generated. In particular, the fovea has only the red and green cone photoreceptor subtypes. And so what we found is we studied some fetal tissue and we were a little bit surprised. So one thing we, we were not too surprised was that there was mostly red and green there from the get-go in that region. But there were still some sparse blue cones. And so we were a little surprised because like, okay, well, what's going on here? Where do they go? And what our data suggests is those blue cones actually convert into red-green cones during development. And so this was super cool to us because, one, it suggested how this could be working. And what we found is that if we add this thyroid hormone to our organoids, we can actually convert the blue cones into the red, green cones. So I think this said a couple different things. One is it said, okay, great. We can study how the fovea is made. But the other thing is it really kind of surprised us in terms of mechanism because we thought like, okay, once you get a cell, it's going to be that cell for its lifetime instead of, oh, okay, it's going to be a blue cell. Oh, now it converts. Um, I think this is going to, this work is going to change how we think about in general, how different retinal cells are made in the human retina.
0: Let's talk a little bit about these organoids. Um, In terms of industry, is there a big shift towards using organoids in trials um, as opposed to animal models?
1: Yes, I will say that um, I'm involved with my collaborator, Mandeep Singh uh, at Agnos Therapeutics, and we are working on these approaches the, the huge benefit of these strategies is that these are essentially bona fide photoreceptors. You know, they're the next best thing from taking human you know, photoreceptors from real humans and using them. A lot of people have done direct conversion from stem cells, but all of the data suggests that really growing them in these organoids is the best way to go. But the challenge really, as with any with anything that involves industry, is, is the money side of things. So again, what we found is that we think that we can grow this um potential therapy but it really needs to grow to about day 120 or so and that's a long time to develop you know oh. any tool in terms of the you'd have to have the expertise to manage the growth of the organoids et cetera, et cetera. so we're trying a bunch of different things to optimize these conditions and you know and part of it is just a simple math of you know if we can Cut that down by 10 days you know how would that influence the cost of the product etc yeah. you know it's a very different thinking for me because i'm very much uh, an academic uh, scientist but it is a it is a really cool new direction in my career at least to to think about uh, ways and ultimately between mandeep and myself it's really we would love to get something out there that would really help people
0: are there other challenges apart from that that time delay in, in making this scalable and and usable as a a, a sort of a standard paradigm for researchers
1: I would say that the time scale is probably the biggest obstacle. The second one would be the efficiency of generating the organoids. You know, you want to um, really optimize that. But I think that, you know, once industry really picks up on it, I think they would have the infrastructure to, to really optimize those conditions. Nice. Academic labs were more focused on these kind of fundamental biological questions for publication, not to generate a product per se. Um, another thing to keep in mind is kind of uh, immune rejection. Um, so we'd have to develop these across kind of uh, what's called allergenic lines that are uh, compatible with, you know, multiple people. But, you know, I think the, the, the strategy is there for us. You know, I think it's just, we just have to keep working on it and, um, and really optimize it to the best of our abilities. And, you know, part of what we're doing is, um, again, we're, we're focused on this cell to cell transfer. So we've been doing, we've seen this a lot in, in mice, Mandeep uh, and others have seen this extensively in mice. What we've been working on now is kind of like human to human experiments using organoids, and then also trying to see this in kind of larger mammal models like pigs and monkeys to to test how how it could work.
0: You got, you kind of touched on something there with this sort of endless um, march towards personalized medicine. Is there a benefit to creating patient specific retinal organoids that uh, can be uh, used for? potentially transplant or, or that other technique you were talking about?
1: Yeah. So I would say that there's um, basically two ways to think about it. I think in general, the field is thinking, okay, we're going to take, you know, we're going to find single gene, single mutation dependent diseases. We're going to make stem cells, induce pluripotent stem cells from those people. We're going to use CRISPR technology to edit the genome and correct those. Then we're going to grow an organoid and put it back in. And that's a great thing if you know the gene and, you know, if you can, if putting it back in is going to work and there's really a lot of great work going down that line. The way that, um, that we've been thinking about things is what if we don't know the gene? What if it's multiple genes? You know, so what we've been thinking about more is saying, okay, what if we have a quote unquote, wild, uh, you know, different pools of wild type cells that we can select from and, they can, we can then transplant them into the retina. They could transfer this material, you know, and it can be multigenic. That's kind of the big thing that we, we could call it agnose therapeutics because we think of it as being hopefully agnostic to the cause of the disorder. Right. And, yeah. And that way it would be the, the benefit of this kind of strategy is that it could treat multiple people with different causes or that they're multigenic uh, drivers.
0: Um, just before I let you go, obviously a retinal organoid is a, a, a sort of an organ in isolation. Has there been any work in um looking to integrate it into a neural network to have it um to to, to understand the how the the information processing continues down into to the brain, for example, um and understand that that brain processing part of it as well using that organoid? Is that really science fiction stuff?
1: No, no. So we're getting there. But I just want to first, you know, give credit to the, all the people who studied model organisms, um, first off. So the people in zebrafish, in mice, in chicken, and also all the kind of higher order stuff in primates. They've really found tons of information about our vision and processing through their studies. The The next goal that you're kind of uh, suggesting is one we've thought about in the lab and others have made some progress on is kind of, for example, connecting the retinal organoid to a brain organoid. And it's still very, very early days. We call these assembloids, but the goal is, you know, connecting those axons to brain tissue and uh, groups like Jason Myers group has, has shown some of this. Wow. I think the the challenge is, you know, what do we want to glean from this? And in part is how close do we really want it to recapitulate the anatomy of the, the, the real uh, development of the process? And so I would say it's a really exciting field, but for that in particular, we still have a long way to go.
0: Uh, Well, really interesting speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Um, Robert Johnson Jr. is Associate Professor in the Department of Biology at Johns Hopkins. Thanks, Bob.
1: Thank you, Jonathan.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I know it was slightly different this week because it wasn't applied research and more of a basic science piece, but it's good to broaden the mind, isn't it? Uh, Let us know your thoughts, Podcast at eRetina.org if you enjoyed it. But that's it from us on this episode. If you want to know more about any of Uretina's activities, you can find out all of the information you need at uretina.org. But for now, I'm Jonathan McRae for Talking Uretina. We'll see you next time.